Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is generously sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. We'd also like to welcome our newest sponsor, the Lumina Foundation. Thank you very much for your support. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And please, please rate us on iTunes. Yes, please rate us on iTunes. And if you have a fun story to tell, we'd love to hear that too. Now let's get to the show. All right, here we are back again with Let's Hear It. Um, this time we get to listen to Eric sit with Alfred Ironside from the Ford Foundation. And Eric, I don't mean to step on this, but what are you calling this episode? Cronies oh. and where and what? Cronies and bars having cocktails. <laughs> it is a, a you know a, a variation on a theme, let's just say. <laughs> well, being able to uh, sit on your shoulder and listen to this conversation, I want to hear, as you set this up, I want to hear about Alfred, but I also want to hear about the location you're in, because this, this, was, this was great to hear about where you guys were located. This conversation happened in the back, towards the back of Molly Malone's pub, 22nd and 3rd in Me- Gramercy Park in Manhattan, New York. <laughs> A half a block away where, from where my mother grew up and about 15 feet away from the bar where my grandmother used to drink. Uh, I took my daughter, the what, – what is she? The intrepid Maggie the, the Brown. Intrepid, <laughs> the intrepid Maggie Brown, our, our uh, production coordinator, communications something or other, uh, there so that she could have her – the first drink I bought her when she achieved majority was in the bar where her great-grandmother used to drink, which I think are – Excellent, you know that's that's just really good long term New York City chops. No. So Alfred and I went to Molly's and we sat down with <laughs> a two a couple of pints of of something. Actually, Alfred was drinking. I think he was, <laughs> I think he was drinking Bailey's and <laughs> Bailey's on the rocks. Yeah, he names the drink in the interview, and it's very exotic sounding. <laughs> so so. It's a funny drink to have, but so whatever. This is what Eric does when he's not running around the country talking to these super interesting foundation and nonprofit communicators. He's uh, just hanging out at the coolest bars. In I the sit in bars. Well. That, there okay. it is. There it is. This is a great conversation, Alfred. So generous to do this, right? And um, yeah, let's let's give it a listen. Welcome to a phenomenally special edition of Let's Hear It. This is, which we're going to call cronies in bars having cocktails. I love it. I am sitting here with my crony and friend and the vice president for global communications. Global. At the Ford Foundation, Alfred Ironside. Alfred, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Eric. And we are sitting here in Molly's Pub, which used to be known as Molly Malone's Pub, which is the, which is the bar where my grandmother used to drink. She was a regular here, she was as I understand regular, she's, it. Yeah. I'm pointing to the, the seat at the bar where mm-hmm. she used to sit. Mm-hmm. This is at 22nd and 3rd in Gramercy Park. Mm-hmm. And um, so many memories for me in this place. And to have you, my my boon companion and bosom chum, to sit here and, and enjoy this and, and have a conversation, uh, it makes it all the more special. And a drink. And a drink. And we, we're having a, I'm having a Murphy's. Let's clink our glasses because you can hear that on radio. We'll do that. Now we're we're only on the first drink, so the conversation may be more 
lucid than it might otherwise, but we'll we'll do our best. Should we order the second now? <laughs> we'll just have to see how it goes. Beer tender. So you are the vice president for global communications, which I, I think a title change is is got to be coming that you where you would be vice president for intergalactic intergalactic absolutely communications is is appropriate to me because who knows where the ford foundation will go next the front lines of social justice are expansive yes they could be anywhere you could be a a, yeah you could be on the front lines of on on mars because i'm sure there will be a need there's going to be justice issues on mars totally It's so obvious yeah. that it's, it's right for the people who are attempting to to infringe on people's justice. I think they have their eyes set on Mars. Do you, do you disagree? I don't. Okay. How could I? You couldn't. Take a sip. Alfred is going to take a sip. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on, Alfred. I'm a fan. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Oh, well, thank you. Let's just, just dive right in. Let's talk about how you... How did you get to this place? And I don't mean sitting here and Molly's talking to me, but... But uh, I do wonder that, too. I I think it's a good point. Uh, I know how I got to this place, and it's not pretty. But Mm. let's just talk about your career. You've had one of the more interesting pathways to to this job that I can think of. You have been a journalist. You've worked in radio. You've worked in international relief. Uh, and I think there's a few other things. You know, I think you sell feta cheese in Bulgaria. You're right. I am right. So let's just start at the beginning. <laughs> you're, so you're from Pennsylvania. Yes, sir. Where, where about? Philadelphia area. Philadelphia. Valley Forge, PA. Valley Forge. Yeah. Heard of that. Yeah, well, most people have heard of Valley Forge. Some people have heard of King of Prussia, which is the name of the town adjacent to Valley Forge. Um, and it got its name because the King of Prussia during the revolution, Prince Frederick of Prussia, sent his emissary to visit Washington and his troops at Valley Forge, and he stayed in the only inn in the town, and they renamed the inn in his honor, the King of Prussia Inn. And the town, which was then called Reesville. Oh, the King of Prussia is much better than Reesville. Yeah. That's so, that's good good marketing. So you come from, you know, a a good message development. (laughs) I do. It's in your, it's in your blood. It's in my blood. It's in my origins. And, um, so, yeah, outside of Philly, there in King of Prussia, where there was a big mall, one of the big early malls in the country, too. So people think of the mall or they think of Valley Forge. Those are the two poles of my upbringing. That's good. History and, and shopping. Yeah. That's good. Okay, so you grew up in, in Pennsylvania area, in, near, near Philadelphia, mm. and uh, and off you went to college, I assume. I went to Butler University in Whoa, Indianapolis. Indianapolis. Yeah. What made you go out to Indianapolis? I wanted to get out of the East, and I wanted to go somewhere that had a great communications program, specifically radio TV. They had a 50,000 watt FM radio station, which was huge for a college at that time. It was an NPR station in Indy and uh, had lots of on-air chances there. And it was great, great experience. And I double majored in political science and um, had a great four years in getting to know um, the Hoosier State. And then I went to grad school at Syracuse, where I studied communications mixed with business at Newhouse so two basketball schools, the focus was always on communications generally. I thought I was going to go into radio, um, and then I ended up going into the Foreign Service because a friend was taking the Foreign Service exam, and she convinced me I ought to, and she was kind of competitive. So I said, okay, I'll take this exam. And I ended up going into the Foreign Service. I did a year in Washington, D.C., and I had an overseas 
hosting in uh, East Berlin. Right. That was so that was the first. You, you took the exam out of after university and and you went to East Berlin that was your first post yep whoa yeah it was amazing and it was in 88 89 90 um so when i got there there was no hint of um, a revolution in the eastern bloc so the wall was up yep People nothing were... was going on it right. was quiet backwater post and um, by the time <laughs> i'd left 2 years later germany was reunited and the world had changed what was it like when the wall came down i wasn't there <laughs> <laughs> this is we, this we is, were on vacation. This is a terrible admission. I, I've hidden this as much as possible through the years. I was on vacation, me and the political counselor, um, which just goes to show how little known what was coming was. I was in Japan on vacation, uh-huh. visiting a friend, and uh, so I wasn't there the night the wall came down. I was back two nights later. <laughs> And I was still dancing on the wall, but it wasn't the night. Oh, that's so funny. It's incredible. So I was there for all the buildup and everything that happened after that, but I missed that. Wow. And I was so angry about that that I left the Foreign Service. Um, (laughs) It drove you out of the Foreign Service? (laughs) It drove me out. That's it. um, But I left because I felt that um, a life spent um, communicating the foreign policy of my country's government may not be the right choice for me. And I never regretted that. I think that was always the right choice. Um, and I still am close to all my friends from that era, um, but I, I know the path I followed was the right one for me. Huh. And then, so after that, what, where'd you go? I went back home to Philadelphia. I, um, I worked freelance for a while, did some writing for some magazines, and a friend of mine who was then working for the AP in Romania, so just recently freed from communism, mm-hmm said, uh, there's a guy here who I think you should meet. He's running an advertising agency here in Romania, the first Western ad agency in Romania, and he wants to expand in Bulgaria, and he needs a smart, young Western guy to front this agency. Come meet him. So I did. I flew over to Romania and met this guy, quite an amazing character. Um, It's a whole other story, and agreed to uh, go to Bulgaria and help him open an ad agency in Bulgaria. What were you selling? That's where the, so that's the, where the feta cheese the feta comes cheese, in. Yeah. They make excellent feta cheese they in Bulgaria. Do. What were you selling in Bulgaria? We, we weren't selling anything. I mean, first, oh. we were building an agency. We were opening an office. We were hiring staff from the university. Qualification was, do you speak English? Um, and trained them. And then we started um, pitching clients. You know, one of the main clients. They were all state-run agencies. Oh. Like the biggest one was um, called Balkan Car, made big, you know, heavy equipment like John Deere tractors. And we pitched them and we got a bunch of yeses. And that was the start of the graffiti advertising agency in Bulgaria, which is still a going concern. We got BBDO, then BBDO to buy in, take an ownership stake. And one of the people I hired is still running the agency today. Yeah. So great experience. I was there for six months. Um, I was asked to stay. I chose to go home again, back to Philadelphia. I got an offer to start um, as director of communications at the Red Cross for the Mid-Atlantic, which is based in Philly. So I took that, and I did that for a couple of years. And then they asked me to, um, you know, when you're that of disaster communications for the Red Cross, you're out on disaster relief assignments right. a lot. And I would comment to my bosses about what kind of operations we were running, and they said, you know what, we kind of agree with you. Why don't you now take over that? So I became the director of so you get the disaster guy. relief. Yeah. You take the guy who complains and you give him the, the job. Give him the Clean job. it up. So you were just working mid-Atlantic for Red Cross. Yeah. What, what, 
it's a domestic mm-hmm. stuff that would happen, floods and things, I assume. Floods, big fires, explosions, hurricanes. We ran a hurricane center on the coast there. I was responsible for it. It was fun. And here's the thing about that. I love that job, Eric, because it was my first real exposure to the harder side of life. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood. I mean, my mother was an immigrant from Colombia, right. so she had a very hard life, but I didn't. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and people who suffer disasters are people who are poor and yeah. without means and low income and who struggle and live in substandard living conditions. And so night after night after night in North Philly and in Camden, New Jersey and in Chester, Pennsylvania... I was exposed to the lives that people led and was intimately involved with them because it was a social work job. Mm -hmm. That was a huge um, learning for me and something that grounded me and has stayed with me all these years. What did you do after that? Mm, I moved to Israel. That's an obvious move. Yeah, obvious next move. (laughs) How did I I not know that? It was so clear. You moved. You moved to Israel and did. And what the you good did. friend of mine from Romania who'd introduced me to the advertising yeah. thing um, was still with the AP, but he was in Israel now, and I went to visit him on vacation, and I fell in love um, with someone, uh, a friend of his who worked at the AP, and um, we considered what to do next, and I agreed to. I would move to Israel. I got a job in Israel, helping to launch the English edition of the Hebrew paper Haaretz. It was a entrepreneurial venture that time I'm co-owned with the International Herald Tribune now the International New York Times and um, I told the editor then editor David Landau an incredible figure in Israeli journalism an Englishman um, that to have this paper be a success it had to have really proper standard American English like the IHT does uh-huh. it couldn't be a Hebrewized version of English which it was in their early editions and I I marked up um, a mock-up edition that they had done and said, this is Hebrew, this is Hebrew, this, these are all Hebrewisms. Hmm. And he didn't agree with me, but when the IHT people came down from Paris and said, the paper sucks, um, fix it before we launch, um, he hired me. Huh. So I became night editor, did that for two years. It was <laughs> now, you, you did incredible. Not have a, you didn't have a journalism background per se, Just right? radio. Just I mean, radio. I studied you know, communications and broadcasting. Uh-huh. Um, worked in radio when I was in Indy, both at the uh, NPR affiliate and at a local commercial station. Played country music and did news at the top of the hour. Uh, <laughs> you read the news? I, and, yeah, I read the news. And at times... You have such when, a wonderful voice when for, the, for radio. When the farm things. reporter was out, I would do the farm you reports. The, what was the farm report like? Well, you know, in? the hogs and the heifers and all that stuff. Um, serious business out there in the Midwest. People, Hogs and heifers. People were Alfred waiting Ironside. for that. You got it. So um, that was a ton of fun, and we did, and we we got to do the Indy Five Hundred and I, a lot of fun stuff. But um, so now you're now you're working, now you're a newspaper man. I'm a newspaper man, and um, I got a call one night. I'm on the desk. I got a call from a friend who was then the head of the press office at UNICEF in New York. And said she was looking for someone to be a spokesman for countries in crisis, huh. um, places where there were natural disasters or civil um, war. And um, would I be interested? And I was. So I moved to New York. That was 20 years ago uh-huh. this summer. And I took a job at UNICEF. And it was just another incredible explosion for me because that was travel all around the world. Right. Um, to Africa, to Southeast Asia, the Timor crisis, the you know, famines in northern Africa, et cetera. Um, 
And what an incredible experience. And I eventually um, succeeded her in the role of global head of the press office at UNICEF. And that was, you know, 10,000 person organization making news every day somewhere in the world and involved in all the UN things and the Iraq war and every kind of thing. It was exciting. It oh, was, I bet. I was on the air all the time. I was doing, you know, television. I was spokesperson for uh -huh. UNICEF. And um, it was tremendously exciting and fun, and I loved it. It was such a great experience. Wouldn't trade it for anything. Seven years there. Seven years. Yeah. Wow. And, and what were some of the, the, the events that you were covering? Mm, every kind of thing. You know, um, child adoptions, the East Asia um, tsunami, um, uh, the, the war in Iraq, as I said, uh, all kinds of um, issues, you know, Breastfeeding and HIV/AIDS in Africa. The issues mm -hmm. were enormous, actually, pretty incredible. And it was a great grounding for me when the Ford Foundation called and said, "We need a director of communications. We're a global organization. You've got global background. Um, would you be interested?" So I was interested, and that's how I got to the Ford Foundation. It was a uh, some total of one block difference in my commute every day. But what <laughs> so an incredible difference. You knew how to find the office. Yeah, I did. But I have to tell you, that first day I came up out of the subway at um, 3rd Avenue and 42nd Street, I, I literally remember that the world looked different to me yeah. because I wasn't walking to 44th Street, <laughs> UN. I was walking to 43rd Street, the Ford Foundation. It was totally different. So with all that global crisis under your belt as your wife hold out over your head does she when the, you know, the kids are in chaos or something like that hey you're mr <laughs> global crisis you figure this out i haven't faced that so much no she doesn't hoist no. you uh, up by your your global crisis petard no not really oh okay. but i do i do i do that's, I, that's nice <laughs> i have a natural tendency to um, to rise to the occasion when there's trouble oh that's good yeah so some some I like that I guess for some reason I I seem to fit well in that. It's when things aren't a crisis that I'm not that oh, effective. Oh, I see. <laughs> so if the bathroom floods, you go. Oh, I did flooding in East Timor. Right, I got I this. Can, I got this covered. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but yeah. but 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 rest is a, you know when the when the house is a hotbed of social rest, then <laughs> then you got a problem. Yeah. Nothing to do. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we will be back with part two of our conversation with Alfred Ironside here at Molly Malone's Pub in Gramercy Park, the place where my gran grandmother used to drink. Can we get our second drink now? Yes, we can. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at letshearitcast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. And we're back. I'm Alfred Ironside with this next edition. We're here with Eric Brown, host of... What's this thing called again? Let's hear it. Let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> it's nice to have someone do your work for you. <laughs> you know, with, with Kirk, my, my co-host, mm. he's, he's the Tom Sawyer of, of podcasting because he said, I've got this great idea. Well, let's do a podcast. And yes. then I do all the work. Yeah, of And course. so I'm painting his fence and he's just reaping 
the benefit. Look, he's, he's, he's in the hammock. He's in the hammock. Yeah. He's sitting there in it. But so it was very nice to have you do that intro. That was a the, pleasure. The re-intro. It's fun. That was that was nice. Thank you very much. You don't much. have outro music or anything though. We we can talk over something. We don't we, have that. Oh no, no, we do. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. It's we'll you'll, do it. You'll edit that we'll in later. Fix it in post. Yeah. I, actually, I don't have John Ellie, who is our our composer, come to every taping. That because that's we just don't have the budget. I understand. But we are back here at Molly Malone's Pub, one of my favorite places on earth. This is, and with one of my favorite people on earth, what could be better? And with my favorite intrepid communications associate on earth, coordinator, she's shrugging. So you're at the Ford Foundation. I am. And which is, you know, pretty good job. It's a great job. At your your communications director and Marta Talato, it was the vice president for, I I presume global communications at the she time. She was, and you worked with her for how long? We worked together um, from the day I arrived in January two thousand six till she left in two thousand thirteen. So, what's that? Seven years? Seven, seven years. and a half years. And she went on to become the head of the CEO of Consumer Reports. Yeah, she's doing a bang up job. So there's life after that. You should interview Marta. I, I will. Actually, that would be a I ton love, of fun. I love Martin. We are also Me both too. both Mets fans, which will be we could just do a podcast about the Mets. That's true. It would be sad, but fun. <laughs> but so you're at the you're at the Ford Foundation, and th- this is I think where it gets. <laughs> I must say where it gets interesting for our audience. Oh, I'm yeah. sure they're fascinated yeah, with the first part of this. They're but, riveted. But the idea that you're at having come from. Having done all of these things that you did, bringing that together into a communication strategy, working at this level with these kinds of resources must have been pretty interesting for you. It was it, it was remarkable. I, when, coming from the UN, I had the great advantage of having been exposed to the whole human rights approach to development. And the Ford Foundation is all about right. um, social justice and human rights. So it was a great grounding for me. Um, and the whole international piece of my experience, too, really works for Ford because we're dealing with um, very, very different places, India and China and Brazil. Not easy places to work. No. Complex work. So that has um, really helped me be effective. Um, and then, you know, you're among people who are so amazing and so smart and so learned and so um, gifted and committed. You're learning something every day at the Ford Foundation, not only because the people are there, but the people that are attracted to the place to, that convene there. Uh, so, yeah, it's an incredible experience. And I, I was surprisingly well prepared yeah. because of being abroad and being at the UN for the Ford Foundation. I didn't know when I walked in the door. And the amazing thing was it was such a it's such a different place from the UN, a lot smaller, mm-hmm. but yet a big global brand in its own way. But um, so much more accountable. And in the foundation mm. world, we don't think of foundations as that accountable. But compared to the UN, <laughs> incredible Are you accountability. you saying the UN is not fully accountable? I'm not really saying that. I'm just saying the Ford Foundation is amazingly accountable. Relatively speaking. Yes. This is accountability galore. Yeah. Let's talk about communication strategy. How do you think about communications in the context of a big foundation, particularly a big global foundation? I, you know, we are not frontlines actors. Right. Um, the, the, but the Ford Foundation is 
working with partners who are on the front lines of social change. Absolutely. Right? We are working with visionaries, <laughs> not just partners. No, the visionaries. Visionaries on the front lines of social change. And, and, they're not, and it's not verdant. It's not verdant, no. The front lines of social change are not verdant. So if you're working with visionaries, then is the Ford Foundation sort of the optometrist to the visionaries? You, you help them focus their vision? I don't know. That's an interesting idea. Um, maybe you should come work at the Ford Foundation. <laughs> I did not have the requisite optometry skills. But, you know, when I started at, at Ford, it was still in 2006, the era when foundations didn't really communicate. Um, they were very, very yep. backseat actors and felt that their grantees do the right. our, our grants do the speaking for us was the idea. And that was the case at Ford, certainly. But we faced crisis um, just before I joined that um, and then President Susan Beresford realized actually we need to have a professional communication shop. Mm -hmm. We need to um, get out in front and define ourselves before we're defined by others. And so experiences of crisis really changed. I think um, for the Ford Foundation, at least, our sensibility about communications. Um, but then in also that same year when I started, um, Buffett made his big commitment to Gates. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, philanthropy was on the front pages right. in a way it had not been for a long time. And... There were beats established at the Times and the Journal. It became a big thing. And so... And beats that have since been abandoned. Yes, abandoned. But, but there was, still. But there was also then the growth of um, social media. Mm. It's just really coming into um, the picture at that time. So there was just this shifting environment where there was demand for transparency and there was a lot of criticism happening and there was news focus and scrutiny. So... Um, I think the first order of business was to enable the foundation to understand how to communicate and have a point of view and um, have strong institutional corporate communications, if you will. Right. But the part of the work that's really most interesting, Eric, and I think what your question is driving at, is um, the work that we do to support program teams to use strategic communications um, in their work, in their grant making, to support the fields that we work with or the movements that we fund. Um, use communications to the max to drive the work forward. That's the part of the work that's most interesting. Right. So like many of the larger foundations, my, we have a team that um, has focal points for program and they engage with program all the time and they're giving them advice and counsel and we help set them up with firms to do smart work on the ground. That's the best part of the work. I think it's the part where the most value is. Sure, the institutional communications is important. And in Darren Walker, we have a president who... I like to say, not only does he recognize the importance of communications, he wants to communicate, yep. he is good at communicating, and he has something to say. Right. That's um, a set of attributes you rarely find in any um, CEO. So to have that um, makes my job fun and interesting and quite uh, easier in a way. Um, and so all that's very important in the positioning of the foundation through the voice of the present. All that stuff is great, um, but I think the most important work we do is, is with program teams and the, and the organizations that the foundation supports. You uh, gave a talk for, I think it was Communications Networks DC mm -hmm. Local mm -hmm. a while back, and you said something that I, I wrote it down. I dutifully wrote oh, it down because it was really good. No, no, no. Uh, you're, you're safe. Uh, it, because it it really rang true with me. You said to make a difference, you have to be relevant. To be relevant, you have to be visible. And to be visible, you have to have something to say. Mm. It feels to me, and my own thinking on this has evolved over time. I used to 
when I, I worked for the Hewlett Foundation when it was a very low key institution, and it it uh, we didn't do a whole lot of public communications, but the more I think about it and the more I work with folks, I realize that each foundation does have um, an opportunity to to meet those criteria. And can you just talk me through that formulation? What does it mean to be relevant? What To what extent, what does visibility actually mean in the context of philanthropy? Because foundations, some of them are more visible than others, and that's that can be fine. There is no there is no thing that uh, there's no one size there's no fits all. No standard for that. No yep. standard for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then having something to say. Where, when when do, when should foundations use their voice, and to what to what end? Um, I do have a point of view about that. I think it's probably a point of view shaped by being at the Ford Foundation, but I think it applies more generally. Um, I think first of all, foundations um, generally flirt continuously with irrelevance. Sure, there's lots of money and you give the money to people, but it's the people who you give the money to that are doing stuff and active and saying things and fighting for things and serving people. So we're very much in the background and we make much of who we are and we're very um, self-congratulatory, I think, in our space. Um, But it's hard to be relevant when you're just giving money away. Like, yeah. what is your role? Hey, right. just give us the money and let us do the work. <laughs> um, but we're also an independent sector. Um, we don't have to ask people for money. Um, we're not um, beholden to quarterly results. Um, and so philanthropy also is a very um, uniquely autonomous and independent voice. And so I think... Um, you want to be relevant because you have a special privilege uh, and your public trust. And you can um, speak out in ways that other institutions cannot because they have to raise money and they have to keep people happy and so forth. Um, so I think the autonomy that foundations have um, gives them the opportunity to be relevant with their voice in, in, in a very particular way that other institutions don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the whole formula? <laughs> so we're, Relevant, we're, visible. And have something to say. Yeah. So you can't be relevant in, unless you're visible with audiences that yeah. you care about. So who, do you, who can you influence? Um, when you have money, people will listen. It's true. And you have the freedom to say things, you should say them right. um, where others can't. So you can have a kind of um, relevance and credibility that other actors can never achieve by virtue of who we're set up to be. And um, and what was the second part again? That's the drink coming into play. <laughs> this is dangerous, Eric. Uh, visible, relevant, visible, something oh, visible, to say. Visible, yeah. So visibility, you're right. There's no one standard for that. Um, it's right. about who you care about. And this is where it's, it's about strategy. Who can you influence? Right. Who matters? Who will listen to you? At Ford, we recognize we're not a household name. Ford Motor Company is, not right. the Ford Foundation. Um, you're, you're pretty close. Though. I mean, you're not a household name, but... Here's the thing. If you work in the nonprofit world, somebody somebody figures knows that the, the Ford Foundation is... is okay, it. that's a very prescribed audience. Right. Um, and Fair if enough. you think about the American population as a whole and when um, Philanthropy Awareness Initiative did its research right. 10 years ago... I think it still holds. 
um, they, they surveyed the top 25% of most aware active Americans. And of that top 25% of aware Americans, the percentage that could name a foundation unaided was tiny, 10% right. or less, I think. And the ones they named were Gates or Ford or Rockefeller, primarily. That's 2.5% who could just name one, never mind know what they do, understand them, and have... So for whom we have relevance and credibility, it's a tiny, tiny, yeah. tiny percentage of people. It's influencers, right? mostly. Um, and every foundation has um, influence in its, influences in its orbit. And so that's who you need to be visible with. Who do you... When you get to the office every day... Who do you care most about communicating with? Who is it most important to you that they understand not what you what the Ford Foundation is? No, I mean I, I understand that that is it can be tertiary to to your own strategy, but who is it that you think about most about how how to do your job and how, how to think about your communication strategy? So we. Um Somewhere mid-long in my tenure, we um, realized that we can all talk about audiences. Oh, government and academia and right. social sector, blah, blah, right? The standards yeah. we name. And that's just such a laundry list. And we all name that same list. Right. We and realized, it's bland and nameless, right? Yes, exactly. And, and what we realized was, it's, it, yes, that's true. But in a more focused way, who we care about, Eric, are people who um, can influence social change, mm -hmm. who see themselves as social change makers and they can be in any sector sure. um, but that is a subset of academia and business leaders and social sector leaders and other kind so that's when we realize okay it's actually people who care about social change and who are committed to it that's our audience because we're in the social change business um, how change happens is our coin of the realm for us right after 80 years in this business we ought to know something about how change happens we ought to have a point of view one should help. and for people who care about that, we should be a touchstone. That's our audience. What was the, what was the best day you ever had at the Ford Foundation? Today. Today was a great day at the Ford Foundation. <laughs> Every day it, is the best day. <laughs> it's not true. Um, today happened to be a good day, as a matter of fact. But oh, Congratulations. Um, wow, what a good question. You know, one of the things that we struggle with, I think, and in our line of work is that um, we're one or two steps removed from where the real action is. Yep. We're not at the ACLU or at Planned Parenthood or endless numbers of organizations that we care about and support. Um, none of us are in foundations. So yeah, um, just trying to be, just try being a consultant for a foundation. <laughs> <laughs> what constitutes a really good day for us, I think is when um, we have, Lots of people in our building um, learning together and making um, new alliances and creating ideas and generating fresh ways of thinking about the important business of, of um, social progress. I mean, I think, again, when you're at a, for a foundation that's a social justice foundation, um, there's a lot of hard days because it's tough out there. Yeah. The issues are real. and when you're up close to um, people's struggles, you really feel like it's daunting and overwhelming. But then there are days when you're surrounded by these incredible people um, who are the people we support with funding. And they're there together and you've created an opportunity for them to do things together 
that they don't get to do in their everyday work. Um, and that's amazing. Those are the great days, I find. Those are the really wonderful days when you're um, bringing people together and you're they're inspiring one another and you are so inspired by them. Those are the great days. What kind of advice do you have for young people who are interested in getting to the social change business, however defined? Maybe they want to work for a nonprofit. Maybe they want to work for a foundation. Bless their hearts. What, what, what do you say to them? How, how should they think about this work? What are the lessons that they need to apply? And how do they deal with the people in the bar at Molly Malone's? It's getting loud in here. <laughs> people are having a good time. Um, I know, and for good reasons. Uh, well, first of all, I make it a policy not to try to advise young people about anything. Um, <laughs> they'll find their way. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I guess um, one of the things that I think about a lot is... Um, the whole nonprofit industry, there's something not great about it. Mm. Um, and especially in the international nonprofit space, um, all these NGOs going in to help. Right. Um, I think that there's some deep flaws and problems with that structure. I would, I think that it's, um, Young people, smart young people who care about these issues really need to think hard about um, what they believe in. Do they believe in governments or do they believe in just social entrepreneurship, which mm -hmm. is, a, is a very, very narrow way into serious problems. Most problems that are, are serious, are, that we care about, are um, systemic problems that are ill-served by tiny little Mm -hmm. um, exotic interventions that we feel great about. Ah, we built a school. Right. I wouldn't ever speak ill of anyone who does that stuff. It's amazing work. It's God's work. It's all to the earth work. But to imagine that you're really having an impact on the systems that keep um, people uh, oppressed, yeah. you're, you're fooling yourself. I think you know, young people are in a great position to enter into this space thinking hard about what's real and um, what systemic mm -hmm. change requires. And it's not Band-Aid solutions that many NGOs um, invest in. So these things take time, for sure. Yeah. What uh, gives you hope? Uh, well, history gives me hope. Um, there's incredible examples of progress through our own history in this country and around the world. We see them all the time. Um, history is not linear. Um, so we go backwards and forwards and struggle with the mm -hmm. same issues in cyclical ways. But the long arc of history, I think, is, is Martin Luther King. Someone said something about that <laughs> once. Bends toward justice. I think that, that history gives me hope. That's something that we at Ford we're proud of, contributing to those important moments. Um, so that's something that we draw on mm -hmm. to know it's possible. Big change is possible. That's, that gives me hope. And also, um, wow, these incredible people that we're so lucky to support, they're, they're truly, this is not blah, blah talk. They are amazing people. Mm -hmm. They work for far less than we do. Um, they're incredibly committed. They do amazing things. They take risks. They're courageous. They fight um, um, hard fights, quixotic fights sometimes. Mm -hmm. They're totally inspiring. And filled me with hope. And they're always filled with hope. Yeah. It's incredible to be around that. Who wouldn't want to work at yeah. a social justice foundation? Well, 
It's uh, Alfred, you fill me with hope because you're a smart guy in a great place and doing really fun and cool work. And I've always enjoyed spending time with you. And I, I continue to be impressed by by you and and just the work that uh, that that you guys are involved in. It's I don't take I, another sip of your beer seem, there. Right? <laughs> it seems like such a very hard job. I'm just one guy in a sandwich, and there you are. <laughs> All these people in all these places. You know, as you were saying before, um, our work is relatively not hard. Um, we're blessed to be able to do it, to contribute to these organizations with these missions. It's a blessing for us. Yeah. And so I feel good about that. That's the thing. Actually, as it was at the Red Cross and at the UN, at UNICEF and at the Ford Foundation, incredible missions. And to be a part of that, to help these organizations preserve their strengths and convey them to people in the world, that feels like... Uh, I'm lucky to do that. I love it. Well, thank you. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for hanging out with us here in, at Molly's. And, I love it. And cronies in bars having cocktails. Yes, sir. Here we go. Thanks again. Anytime. All right. Welcome back. So, Eric, we didn't get a chance to do the intro on Alfred when we did oh, the setup. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back, roll the tape backward. But I will say, <laughs> I will say that hearing... You guys talk through Alfred's career. It's the first time in these interviews that I've thought I've wasted my entire professional <laughs> life. I've accomplished nothing. I'm nothing. International man of mystery. Oh, he, he actually He's ridiculous. Is. He really is. He really is. So, so could you give us a little context setting for, for why Alfred is on our podcast? Why? In case you have any questions after having heard him talk. Well, if you, have a, if you, have, if you didn't figure it out from that conversation, <laughs> Alfred and I have known each other a little while. And we feel comfortable in each other's presence, which, which, which helps. Uh, he's, we sat on the board of the Communications Network. For a long time, we I think we were on. We met a lot when we were both communications directors at big foundations. Mm. So we, we've we've generated a friendship and a a, a rapport yeah. over the years. But you are right, Alfred is uh, a re- a well traveled fellow, and I mean, you know, it's it's kind of like almost comical his his resume, especially the Bulgarian oh, ad God. ad agency, oh, which of course I'm like of course you you work for a Bulgarian ad agency so he's he's the only feta cheese salesman friend i have i gotta say i was listening to you guys talk and i'm thinking to myself this is what it sounds like when you don't have to prove it this is what it sounds like when you're just (laughs) totally doubted so you know what i forgot to mention to him Uh, was that he is one of the best dressed men in philanthropy of course he is but and stylish but but without pushing it, yeah. he doesn't have to prove that either. Uh, great, as great. I say, Alfred, if you're listening, you wear some stuff I just couldn't pull off. Yeah, great. You know, you, you got to have confidence to wear the, you know those kind of. Anyway, no, I'm kidding. So what I love about his whole trajectory in starting at Butler, he went to a school that had a fifty thousand watt FM station. Yeah, yeah, you know that was like <laughs> what he brought him to. So <laughs> they broadcast into Mexico. I feel like oh my god, that's so awesome. And, and they didn't. I'm just making. Well, and I love the chops of the uh, high school student that seeks that out, you know, and says that's something yeah. I want to be part of. So. Um, there's something – I feel like there's a theme showing up though and I'd be curious to get reflection on it here about the different trajectories people are taking before they get into philanthropy. Yeah. And there's something – as wildly crazy as it is, I'm like, wow, those are all the building blocks that set you up to be the kind of systems level thinker that you need to be when you're sitting at, in philanthropy at scale. Would you – what yeah. do you think about that? Oh, there, now you get all 
meta on me. Too high. Right. Sorry. No, you're right. Sorry. <laughs> it's 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 a good combination of the two of us because you think and you're thoughtful, and I just crack jokes. Hardly. I I agree though. You're right that I he he did study communications uh, at public relations. Public uh, public relations. I yeah. think in, in did you go to grad school. He went to grad school in yeah, Syracuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He, so he, I think he studied communications. Where he ended up in the foreign, foreign service. That's right. I almost <laughs> a fluke, it sounds like. I'm sure it was the CIA, and he just won't say. <laughs> I, but right. I'm like, wait, come on. You're in East be. Berlin. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, he's, You're right. made. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and he was smart enough to get to go to Japan when it all went down. Yeah. Uh, but no. It, in air quotes, I was out of town when I the wall that, came down. That's right. Indicted. <laughs> Obvious, yeah. Total um, deniability. Yeah, yeah. You are right, though. Very few people go into communications to do communication. You know, they came from somewhere. Mm -hmm. I certainly (laughs) – I I have a long and winding road (laughs) in my background. But certainly there were a lot of journalists. Kristen Mack, our our recent guest, was Mm -hmm. a journalist. Yeah. Uh, And you see a lot of folks who come out of journalism, but you see a lot of people who come out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. I have a colleague who went to the Juilliard School. And studied acting. I, right. Uh, these are the kinds of things that lend themselves, however, to though, as you say, the kind of systems thinking yeah. that you 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 refer to. And uh, if you're doing international work, it it helps. It gives you a background in the kind of work that Ford is doing. It mm. certainly looked good, I'm sure, for him in the interview that he had this. You know, he had all sorts of really, really interesting international work yeah. in there. But also working in in the working for the Red Cross in Pennsylvania was you know, that's oh, really interesting. That is talk about on the ground. It's like under the ground. Well, and he has all these little uh, nuggets as he reflects on his experience. So it, when he does talk about the wall coming down that nobody was aware. Yeah. Like it, he was like, this is an indication of how sudden this was. It actually occurred to me, we have to remember that as change people, don't we? You know, because part of us wants the gratification. Part of us wants the obvious evidence that we're going somewhere. Right. But part of us needs to hold on to the fact that you just grind it out and that at some point things can pop and you don't. You may not know why, yeah, right, well, what the factors are. That's for sure. And we all know that, that political change in particular is not linear. You yeah. could be bumping along for a long period of time and then all of a sudden the window opens and you have to be ready to go through it. Or else you're going to lose that opportunity, and you know we see social movements happening like that all the time. And you have to be ready, and this is why you can't always show that there are great outcomes happening in your grant making or in your communication strategy, for that matter, until the great opportunity comes and you go and you go for it. And th- that that really does kind of preach towards patience when you're working on these things. If you really believe that this is a strong strategy, you have to be willing to fail at it for quite some time before you finally succeed. Well, and, you know, he's got this great turn of phrase when he talks about um, how change happens. That's the coin of the realm. Yeah. You know, and so I was like, huh, right, Ford, you've been at this 80 years. He's like, we should know something about this. And sure enough, if you jump on the Ford website, you're going to see a video from 2014 where they talk about their theory of change and how the pieces come together. So. I really appreciate that part of what Ford is doing too, in terms of you know being in the work for such a long time, but also emphasizing that we have a story to tell. Um, he talks about being, by the way, when he was um, doing communications for the Red Cross of the Mid Atlantic. Um, uh, he just says in passing, the people who suffer most in disasters are poor. Yeah, you know, and it's just that is such a thing that as salience as we see the cumulative effect, right, of all of this crisis that we're in. If you're a person of means. You can find a way out right. often. 
you know, but if you don't have those means, uh, good luck sometimes, yeah. right? You buy so, a house on higher ground. Oh, man. Um, so he also talks about uh, somebody we've talked about in passing, Darren Walker. And Darren, as the head of the Ford Foundation, really being a leader who embodies this notion that foundations have something to say. And then and then uh, Alfred started talking about the ingredients. And you kind of went through that thing, right? Like, right. What, what, So tell me a little bit about that because I, I was thinking to myself, man, what I know of Darren and then what I now know of Alfred, this is a pretty generative place, it seems, when mm-hmm. it comes to having a story to tell and actually putting it forward. And actually it seems like being pretty fearless about how to project it given the kinds of topics that they focus on. So what do you think about that? Darren's role in particular as a communica- as a foundation leader who's right. clearly so effective at the kind of communications work he's doing himself. We've had this conversation before with some of our other foundation CEOs. Jim Canellis is a really good example of somebody who has become a leader in Boston, even though the foundation may not necessarily have a very specific grant-making program in some of the areas that uh, Jim has spoken out about. Grant Oliphant's another one who has become a real leader, not just in Pittsburgh, in phil- but in philanthropy about the need for foundations to speak out. I think that goes to this question about the the foundations using the foundation using its voice yeah. to offer ideas and to help provide leadership on important issues of all kinds. And I think that's where the you have have to have something to say comes in, you know, loud and clear. Well, it's funny. We have our own hidden special episode that we've never published <laughs> reflecting on a foundation leader that we both really respect, talking about Me empathy, enlisting with empathy. And, and actually, Darren has spoken to that issue, too. So it's almost like we should do a special double episode where, you know, because hearing <laughs> – That won't get released. Well, and hearing these le- – right. The but director's hear, cut. Hearing That's these right. leaders – we've talked about urgency of success recently. And hearing these leaders, these national leaders who are actually coming at these really pressing issues from a process of empathy rather yep. than division – Again, it gets me back to my thing about what can we do to make these the voices that we're hearing every single day. Um, what do you think about that formula? Oh, and I also liked that um, that Alfred said that Darren's commitment to communications and his facility with it, it makes the job fun, interesting, and easier. Yeah. Alfred said. And, but I thought, you know, that's that's a little bit of a special sauce, I bet, because I wouldn't necessarily think that would be the case necessarily, right? <laughs> what, what do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, there may be days when when – Alfred's job is made slightly more challenging because his boss is outspoken. But I think that's, you know, the the it's worth it because Darren has offered. He's basically made space for the foundation to have influence. And that's so important. That's so much easier or better or more advantageous for a foundation than for you to have to be shoving into a space as as a foundation communicator or a communications director, particularly if you have a CEO who is not clear about what they want to achieve or the areas that they want to have an influence in. So, uh, you know, on balance, I think it makes his job easier. And there may be days where some reporter calls and said, your boss said, what? <laughs> you know, I'm sure those are good days. So he talks about you must be relevant, visible, and have something to say. Right. And um, I love that formulation. But then he also, again, great little nuggets, foundations flirt with irrelevance. Yeah. And I thought that you kind of leaned into that a little bit. Um, and it, But then also foundations are in the background and can be self-congratulatory. So this is my thing about – so 
but I kind of want to be congratulatory of this work. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. But what do you make of that? Because you 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 come from this uh, you come from this world. So how does that balancing go? Do you think of trying to be authentic, disciplined, not tell, not read your own headlines? But I but I think there's a hope and optimism that has to go with the work too, right? Yeah. Well, the self congratulatory part. I think that is a variation on the fact that what you say has to ring true. Yeah. If it doesn't ring true, if it sounds like you're blowing your own horn for no good reason, if it sounds like you're saying something that you don't have authority to say, you don't have standing, Mm. then you're blowing your own horn. If Mm. what you're saying rings true, and if it comes from this authentic place, then that you know that's that's appropriate and usually those messages are effective yeah i think that's what he's getting at we have to ask ourselves those questions though are we the right messenger and is what we're saying that is it going to make sense coming out of our mouths and do we have some reason to have a place to say that stuff well, and I loved the um, discipline they've clearly put in it forward around who they're trying to communicate with and why. Yeah. He talked about that bland and nameless laundry list, cat, right? <laughs> and you keyed into Policy that right makers. away. <laughs> <laughs> Decision makers. Right, right. And so they're communicating to social change makers. And then thank you for asking him. You're about- welcome. About his favorite day oh. at oh. the foundation. Yeah, that was- in, in general. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Tom Sawyer says. Uh, but and Tom Sawyer says, thank you. You missed this spot. <laughs> yeah, right. Could you please come back tomorrow? <laughs> so you talked about, you asked him what's your best day. And he reflects on the days they get to convene people and yeah. be surrounded by all the people doing the hard work. And um, I just, you know, it's just. That's really great and gratifying to hear. And um, it actually makes me wish I could be a fly in the wall. Like, I'm sure there's video somewhere of what that can look oh, like. Oh, yeah. Um, but that was really, really cool to hear about. So, and and he leaves us with the adage, big change is possible. Yeah. Big change is possible. And so if Alfred Ironside says big change is possible. Must be possible. Sign me up. <laughs> I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> that was great. Anything else you want to cover there? Alfred was just awesome. No, that was great. Alfred, thank you. If you're out there listening. Uh, you're just a great guy and that was a lot of fun okay everybody that's it for this episode please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have in the show and that includes yourself and we'd like to thank Maggie Brown our intrepid production coordinator Sarah Morgan our tireless social and digital media maven John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. Ben Rockwood, our brilliant partner behind the production curtain. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation for their incredibly generous support. We are especially excited to welcome our newest sponsor, the Heinz Endowments. And be sure to check out their podcast, We Can Be, hosted by Grant Oliphant at Heinz.org slash podcasts. Thanks so much. Thank you, thank you. And we certainly thank our guest and, of course, all of you. And thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) No, no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) Till next time. Let's hear it.